0: Class number two, Conversations with Yogananda. Do we have any thoughts or comments from anything that happened last week? Okay, Sarah starts. Saiganesh, could you pass that over? Um, I, used, <coughs> I used to be a secretary years ago and took dictation from my boss And of course, I guess that would be a little faster than conversation. I still can't understand how Swamiji was able to write down Master's words unless Master gave him the ability to do that. Well, uh, Swamiji said he has an extraordinary gift for remembering Master's words. He gave that example about how Master gave him a few words in Bengali and a decade later he still remembered them exactly. Um, Swami is a linguist. He has the ability to concentrate. Um, There's a story that's told in uh, my book about him where uh, they were having, Padma was doing some business with him and they were dealing with a realtor. And at one point, Swami looked at something that had the realtor's phone number on it. And an hour later, when they had to call him, Swami just recited the number. And Padma said, How could you know that, sir? You just glanced at it. He said, Yes, but I concentrated when I was glancing at it. So I think that he was totally concentrated. So he would... And I I know this from myself because I don't have quite that gift, but I have been gifted to a certain extent. I can write down part of it and then I can remember the whole sentence. So Swami himself said he didn't have shorthand, but he could write down the essence of it and then he could get it correctly. And, you know, he, he edited them for clarity. So he, you know, even if he got a the instead of a that or something like that, it wouldn't be important. The important point was the thought. And the thought, because he was in tune, he would always get the thought right. So otherwise, it's a good question. But he said, not in this book, when he, when he was doing um, Self-Realization, where he needed, the, the Essence of Self-Realization book, where he needed topic uh, enough quotes on each subject. He said sometimes when there weren't quite enough, he prayed for Master and then he would remember something else Master had said. So it was not a and ordinary exchange. Well, it, think about in Autobiography of a Yogi when uh, Lahiri Mahashaya said to his disciple, interpret the, the Gita as you feel to and I will guide your thoughts. And in this way, it said, many of the master's intuitions or teachings were written down. And it, they didn't even come out of the mouth of the master, he just guided the thoughts of the disciple. But the disciple knew that what he was channeling was Lahiri's thoughts. So there's a lot that goes on here that isn't just um, rational exchange. I mean that such a such a thing could be presumption, but in Swami's case, it doesn't appear to be. Any other questions? Someone else? Chandra had a question in the back. I've I've been thinking all week about um, the phrase um, being in peace, at peace with the Creator. Oh, not only does, do these teachings make you at peace with yourself, exactly. They do indeed, the Master answered, but that is the least that they do. We teach people above all how to be at peace with their Creator. And, I, and so I have been just wondering what that, what that means. It feels so good to, to think about it. Um, I, I guess just accepting what is. Actually, the next, um, well, not the next, but uh, conversation number 10 actually deals with that at length. But let me, but no, but let me touch it for just a minute because something else has occurred to me. In the Festival of Light every week, we talk about the four stages of the soul's long journey that the bird goes through. The little bird who represents the soul. The first stage is the mission. We are launched by our creator, And our mission is to be fruitful and to multiply and to share with all the gifts that we have because we are a part of all that is. In other words, to live in complete harmony with the purpose for which we were made, which would be to say to live in harmony with the Creator because God made us in a certain way and if we live according to his plan, that would be at peace with it. But the little bird in flight for the first time gloried in his newfound strength and he began to think how foolish I would be to share myself, what I have with others. What else is wisdom except to keep what is mine for myself? And so we forgot the mission. We forgot what our creator intended because we got, we started participating exuberantly in the delusion. Instead of staying close to the wave and to the ocean, like we were talking last week and just being at peace with the sea, we started trying to push our wave up. And when that felt good to us, And so we enter the second stage of the soul's long journey, which is called the revolt. So what happens is we're made a certain way by our creator, and then we stage a rebellion against our creator. And that's where people live. The wave imagines that it can lift itself up and stay there. And some of the conversations today are about this illusion of our separateness. And we're in rebellion against the creator be fruitful, multiply, share what you have, be a part of all that is. No, no, I'm separate, I'm separate, I'm separate. And we insist on that. And the bird, even though repeatedly, he lost all he had. He still kept on with that particular reality. So that is the opposite of being at peace with your creator. You could be at peace with yourself in the sense of you could wholly approve. It's unlocked. You could wholly approve and be wildly enthusiastic about everything that you're doing and and not have the slightest conflict with yourself about what's going on, but you're not at peace with your creator because you're rebelling against the way you're made and against divine law. So then, as as those stages progress, we get smashed sufficiently and we become interested in what's true because, just to finish, the third stage is the quest where we've forgotten what we're doing here, we've rebelled against what's happening, but that's not working for us, so we begin to quest after the truth. And that's really where we are. Which is, even though we still rebel sometimes, we're now seriously interested in knowing what is. And in other words, we're trying to get back to being in harmony, which is to say, in peace with our creator. Which is to say we have to live according to divine law, we have to cooperate with his his reality instead of just our own. Does that make sense? It's a beautiful concept. Yeah, it's worth meditating on, just even the, the, the beautiful words, to be at peace with your creator. Think what that means. I mean, just meditate on what that means. You go back and you're in harmony with the way things are. Way, you're in harmony with the core of yourself, pardon me, with God, in tune with God. There's lots of other ways to put it. And last week, I, I, won't, I won't belabor the point because I belabored it plenty last week. You know, just to be psychologically integrated is not the same as to be at peace with your creator. It means that you have accepted all of your own base impulses and you no longer have complexes with them, about them. I'm just a greedy, kind of a ambitious, um, not very nice guy. and That's just the way I am, you know. You can be at perfect peace with yourself, but you're not at peace with your creator. <laughs> too much of psychology is just to accept yourself the way you are. Swami once said, the only way, the only path to self-acceptance is to have a clear conscience. Because otherwise your inner reality is always going to be rebelling. Otherwise it's superficial, in other words. Okay. Any other questions? All right. So now we are in number three. Is man important in the scheme of things? The professor asked. This is our professor from Columbia University, who's our introductory fellow here. Master answers, Man is important in one sense only, the master replied. He was made in the image of God. That is his importance. He is not important for his body, ego, or personality. His constant affirmation of ego consciousness is the source of all his problems. On another occasion, oh, excuse me, that was just the end of number three. Um, you know, this is actually, um, uh, one of the things about Master's teachings, especially the way Swami has uh, clarified them for us, is that it, it really enables us to, to discriminate between what is wise and what is merely conventional. And what and what is is wise, in the deepest, most eternal sense, what is really in harmony with our Creator, and one is just sort of good ideas that people put around all the time. And this actual question is, of where does man fit in, to the whole scheme of creation, and what makes him meaningful or not meaningful, um, is a very it's a very subtle question. Um, on one hand, you have uh, the sort of the idea that people put forward that it's completely arbitrary that this whole, you know, human imposition on the planet is completely false and that the dolphins have as much right to be here as we do and just everything in creation is equal and and why you know, just th- that kind of thought. We should all live, like the buffalo live, whatever it might be. I know right now there's something called the paleo diet, which may have more validity than I... I'm inclined to give it, so I'm, but please don't try to persuade me afterwards. <laughs> I've been through enough fads in my life that I'm really not interested now. But um, this, I know it's a very meat-centric diet, and as far as I can tell, it's a diet that's based on what Paleolithic man would have eaten, which was before we cultivated grains and things like that. This is the best I could tell. My thought was, was it? Is it based on what you can chase down and kill with your bare hands? <laughs> you know, like what is it really? Um, But it's just sort of this sort of randomly trying to guess, you know, where we fit in the scheme of things and go back to the point when before man was imposing his arbitrary civilized ideas of cultivation and so on on things. There may be more sense to it than that. I really have no idea. And truthfully, I don't care. But anyway, there it is. But we're we often have this thought that the, that creation was designed for our comfort. And we feel that the world is off because it's not facilitating our comfort. I don't even mean even in a selfish way, but we just think that the planet is supposed to work for the benefit of human life as we define it and as we define it as good. And even now, you know, we are in this strange conflict where the developed world wants the undeveloped world to remain undeveloped for the sake of the rainforest, or the this or the this, whereas people who have been impoverished for generations who suddenly find a way to get out of their back breaking, stullifyingly dull toil by getting into, you know, more into this modern age are being careless about their natural resources. You know, and everybody's just arguing with everybody. And behind all of that is this idea that the planet is designed for us to have the kind of lives that we ought to have. You know, we want to have these comforts and this reality. and it, it, How important is man in himself? It's, it's, just a, it's a very real question. So when he says, how important is man? And Master says, man is only important because he's made in the image of God. And how does he put it? Um, his constant affirmation of ego consciousness is the source of all his problems. Instead of going on the quest and really trying to intuit from the inside, you know, who am I? Why was I born? How can I be in harmony? Where does my real happiness come from? We just tend to take things in the most obvious way and then try to argue that everyone ought to cooperate. But the problem, of course, is everybody has different points of view. Because every ego, being separate from every other and being at different stages of development, just sees things in its own way. When I first went to India the first time, which was 1986, I guess 86, something like that, and India itself was hadn't really started this developmental spurt which now characterizes it, and it was the first time I had been into um, out of the out of the Western countries, into a country where um, economic development was just beginning, and where there was immense overpopulation and, you know, immense poverty in, on an everyday basis, not just, not just in isolated places that I never see. Um, but I looked, I remember looking out the window, on, just being in the bus and just looking out the window, and it was so obvious to me that all problems on the planet could easily be solved. There's no, there's no source, shortage of resources, intelligence, or technology. It's that people don't want to solve them. They don't want, they don't want to involve themselves on the level that's required for us actually to live in harmony with our Creator in a unified whole. Everybody just has their own way. Um, I remember a high school teacher told me that he did a an experiment, uh, a demonstration on the one of the first Earth Days in his class. And what he did was he got a whole bunch of candy bars and he he designated all the different students in the class or small groups of students, maybe it was individuals, were all designated as uh, different countries in the world. And then the candy bars were all divided up according to the percentage of resources that each country absorbed. And the richest countries took candy first And the richest countries got bags and bags and bags of candies. And then the poorer countries began to see that all the candy was going to be gone before they got there. And the class became rather riotous. Everybody was getting quite upset. But it was just a clear demonstration. We take, one group takes all of this and the others are left with almost nothing. But those who have that big bag, then there's a discussion about whether the people with the big bag are really going to pour it out into the empty bags of the other children. Even the children wouldn't share their candy. What to speak of. But, but because we're thinking that each of us is important and we want what we want. But then we get into this revolt is like it should be different. And we start fighting one with another, really. And trying to tell you ought to do it this way because this is the way it ought to be done. So we, get, we end up just ego against ego, which is what we have now. Because we're not really trying... Oh, I know what I was trying to say. We think the world should be Pleasant, nice, equal. We haven't asked, what is the real purpose of creation? And Master says, man is not important in himself. And the one that comes right after this, he says, on another occasion, the Master told us, man was given ego consciousness to inspire him to seek God. That is the only reason for his existence. Man was given ego consciousness to inspire him to seek God. That is the only reason for his existence. Job, friends, personal interests, these things by themselves mean nothing. And we're always arguing that what goes on on this planet inherently is really important. Now, he, he, he puts it in context. By themselves mean nothing. It's, the point is to be seeking God. And so we have to understand that this planet wasn't set up to work. Or let's phrase it differently... To work means to inspire people to seek God. It's, 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 a, it's very tough because everything in us wants it to be different than that. And uh, Swami is, has, has pointed out, which is it's a little hard to understand, but when you think about it, it's true. We talk about the, the Vaishya level of consciousness, the, the shudra, which is completely uncreative, the Vaishya, which is self-interested, um, the kshatra, which is guided by principle, and the Brahmin, which is guided by attunement to God, that's a, a quick summary. But a great deal of political activism, and let's make the planet perfect, actually comes out of the Vaishya level, because it's based on the fact that I am uncomfortable unless the external world takes a certain form, or I am frightened because you are using up too many resources and you have to change to make me feel good. And and the principle is much more about self-interest motivated. Now, you can also be an activist from a kshatriya level, from a very impersonal point of view about what is right. But often the motivation, which is why a lot of times when people start out being political and as they get more spiritual, they, they lose interest in that level of life because you realize it's just going to be an endless pushing around of the pieces without ever actually changing it. And the only thing that will actually change it is consciousness. That's where I was in the bus, looking out the window. You could have a thousand systems. Any system would work if people genuinely were concerned about being in harmony with their creator instead of just having their sense of, of separateness and then pushing on those egos. Everything in life The the only reason for man's existence is to inspire him to seek God and then you come to that other extremely difficult to accept reality which is what inspires us to seek God. Rarely do people for whom everything works beautifully seek God. They're just participating too exuberantly in the delusion and they're just having too much fun. Even if they're suffering sometimes, they're still participating exuberantly Like my friend who said, when I said, you know, things disappoint you, the things you buy don't fulfill you. She said, well, that's why you have to keep buying new things. Such a simple solution. As soon as you get bored with what you have, then you go out and buy something else. It's obvious, isn't it? It was obvious to her. Wow, what an idea. But she's participating exuberantly in, and you have to suffer more. And as it happened in her life, she really did. I don't know if it brought her to God or not, but her things did not make her happy. When I was uh, at the the funeral of uh, someone that I know, and everybody, everybody was just miserable in that funeral, and the clergy people had nothing to offer, and everybody was just suffering so intently. It was considered to be an untimely, tragic death. And I, was sitting there, I wanted to take the microphone and say something helpful to the crowd, but no one was inviting me to. So everybody just, you know, was hundreds of people dressed in black, just looking as miserable as they could be. And they were. They were just miserable. You know, this person had been taken from them in an untimely manner, and it was just tragic. And the only thing that could be offered, and thats and how the funeral started, was the clergyman got up and urged everyone to write a check for medical research. So for this particular disease, which was somewhat rare, so that no one else would have to go through this. I thought, well, that's one heck of a fundraising technique. That's probably one of the best I've seen. But wow, you know, what a concept at a funeral. when I mean, you should be talking about something else. But I was, I was really, it was so painful. And then I realized, oh yeah, this is what inspires people to seek God. Because everything was fine and then it wasn't. And as long as everything is fine, I mean, how inspired are we? What inspires us is everything is not fine. So if we're on a planet where everything is not fine and there it inspires us to seek God, is the planet working or is the planet not working? It just all depends, you see, on what the goal is. Now don't even for a minute think that that justifies our indifference to other people's suffering because that's how we are in harmony with our creators. We have to be, we have to love others the way God loves us. But still, you see how different it all makes it and how impossible it is to even open that conversation with most people? But how how it completely just puts you at peace? And this is the difference between the revolt and the quest because the revolt is somebody ought to do something. And maybe even I'm going to do something. I'm going to make it different. But maybe it just isn't meant to be different. I'm meant to be different. But it? It's very confusing, isn't it? It's very confusing. Questions or comments or thoughts? But this is, you know, how important is man in the great scheme of things? Master could have answered. Oh, man is the whole point. The whole creation is designed for our pleasure and our self-aggrandizement. And we should do everything we can to make our lives enjoyable for us, shouldn't we? That could have been the answer. No, he says, man is important only in that he's made in the image of God. And then later, and therefore, our job is to become a perfect expression of that. Which often means being in harmony with our creator which may mean quite different things than the ego would like it to mean okay comments or thoughts or questions yes chandra recently i've been asking myself the question a lot um um, whose business is this? Am, am I in somebody else's business, or is this my business? And usually, I'm way off on on the branch, you know, in somebody else's business. And so when I pull myself back, then the only person left is God, me and God, you know. Yeah, that, yeah. And be, and it, and it works. So used use the word meddling. Meddling. meddling yeah. yeah I, I I was I was. Uh... It was a complicated situation, but I explained to Swami, so-and-so did this and that, and, you know, that's why they're upset with me because of this and that. And I said, it wasn't even between me and this other person. It was, you know, it was fine where it was really happening. Swami said, ah, so she was meddling, was the word he used. And I thought, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a word, it's it's a nice word, but she was just meddling in somebody else's business because a lot of times people do that. They, it goes like this, you know, You and you are having some kind of difficulty and I become outraged because you are behaving like this toward this one. And then those people will come to me and tell me to do something about that one. I say, well, you know, it's their karma. They can work it out. They don't need me to helicopter in and arbitrate. I mean, on rare occasions, yes, but we don't have to meddle so much. We can just let things happen in the way they're supposed to happen. Sometimes you're called to do it. And this, of course, becomes the question of of how much we have separated ourselves from our egos and united ourselves with the greater reality. Because if we're living more united with the greater reality, we know when to participate. It's in Autobiography of a Yogi where Master talks about some person who had, he was walking in a neighborhood, I think, and someone had died, actually. And Master went in and brought that person back from the other side. And when Master was telling the story, someone asked him, you know, did God tell you to do that or did Divine Mother tell you? I, I'm not, I don't have the exact details, but this is the essence of it. He said, well, I never would have gone into that house if she hadn't. The mere fact that he could didn't mean that he would or should. It was that he felt an inner call, that this was, this was not meddling. This was his actual responsibility. So that's, that becomes a very subtle uh, thing that you can't quantify. Sometimes it is your responsibility and you do have to get engaged. And other times you're just meddling. <laughs> Without, it doesn't mean you can't be sympathetic and make supportive clucking noises, but you you know, but you don't necessarily meddle. And, and, and so what happens is you get much less alarmed by other people's behavior. Because you realize that karma's just playing itself out. They're acting out their part and this one's acting out their part, and there's no accidents here. And you can advise so-and-so and how to help deal appropriately with so-and-so, but that's not the same as meddling, that's just being supportive if you're called upon. We spend a lot of time just being slightly outraged because other people don't conform to our, our ideas of what they ought to, or outraged, as I was saying earlier, by the whole planet. Because people are actually sharing this planet with lots of lessons to learn. And uh, probably it's us too, probably. And one of them is not to meddle, (laughs) but to be in harmony with our creator. Just like even my suffering when all those people were suffering at that funeral. I mean, it it was a tender-hearted and a not inappropriate response. But I became more centered in my sympathy when I remembered um, God's presence in the midst of it. The circumstances were exactly the same. And the, the inconsolable grief around me was by no means diminished by my understanding, but I was able to be more useful because I wasn't so stricken anymore. I, it, was, it wasn't it was that that dimension of sympathy was gone, it's that I had added to it another layer of understanding. And from with that other layer of understanding, I could relate to this one much more calmly, bring much more to it. And, you know, even just... Watching the clergyman fundraise, it just became, wow, isn't that amazing? Rather than, my God, what could he be thinking? You know, my first first impulse was just outrage. But then I thought, no, in the context in which he's living, that just seemed like a really smart thing for him to do. So let everybody just, we'll just sort this out. Yeah? Okay. Anything else? Number five, what is the difference, asked the professor, between science and religion in the search for truth? True religion, the master replied, is not theology. Um, It is born of deep inner communion with God. True religion teaches us, for example, how to become the atom. Whereas theology, at most, only discusses the atom. Science studies the nature of the atom outwardly, proving its existence by experimentation. Inner religion, however, goes beyond experimentation to actual experience. It helps one to cognize by direct experience his oneness with the atom at its vital center. Purushottam is writing a book about science and religion. He's the author, co-author of the book about the yugas, and he included in there um, some experiments that were done by I think a man named Alcott and Annie Besant. I'm pretty sure it was the two of them. The founders of theosophy. In Helen Blavatsky, was that the one? Where they went uh, deeply into their own inner consciousness into, and they, they went deeply into the nature of the atom and they made diagrams and made, made statements. This was all like when would it have been the late eighteen hundreds the early nineteen hundreds and they made all these notebooks and long before science was doing that, and many of the things that they saw and recorded were later confirmed by scientific experiment and they were very um, they were very into the occult and into mysticism and had all this interesting power but it 's just one of those things you can get to the you know you can get to the same thing from different angles. Um you know, this is really the essence of Master's entire message, which is the whole true religion is not about explaining things. True religion is about experiencing them. I was uh, thinking there's the next, the next one is about when Master was asked which came first, the tree or the seed, which is an interesting answer which we'll get to in a minute. And, but Master says the tree came first the master answered without hesitation. And that was what was interesting to me because master isn't just weighing one intellectual idea against another. Master has been inside of it and he speaks um, without, e- without ego. He speaks from direct perception. When you simply perceive something, it's, it's the way it is. There's no sort of pride of accomplishment in that. It's if, if you've been there, you've seen it. Um, If you've been someplace and someone else hasn't been there, you say, you know, what, what was it like inside? And I would say, if I've been there, what it was like. Well, Master's Attic Meditation Room is on the hallway with the kitchen at one end and the bedroom at the other. And you might know that it's somewhere in the house, but if you've never seen it, but I would just say that without hesitation. And there's a couple of steps in which you go in at 4 Garpar Road, because I've been there a number of times. And it's not egoic for me to say that. It's just that I've been there and I know what it looks like. So when master is asked questions or has to understand something about creation, he just states it from his actual experience. And, and theology is when people try to sort it out. Um, I have a friend who, he's, he's retired now, long retired, Episcopal priest, highly educated, doctor of divinity from Yale the- Theological School, a very uh, intelligent, highly educated man, also a Creobon. I had some question about the Bible uh, a number of years ago, and I I asked him the question because he knew he knew the Bible quite well, and he started explaining to me. This was his exact words: that the teachings of Jesus did not come into full expression until several hundred years after the life of Jesus. I just looked at him. I said, think about what you just said. A self-realized master comes as an avatar and brings a revelation of divine understanding. But it takes 300 years of intellectual theologians to gradually reduce it to something that they can call his teachings. And they say that is the actual teaching. And he started laughing and said his life was simpler before he met me. (laughs) But it—it's it, the way that it is because theology can't always explain what what the masters know from revelation, so they gradually make explanations. I mean, that's that becomes religion, and then it's all about how you explain it, and you have all these dogmas. And I, uh, when I see some of the things that the Catholics explain, I laugh because I—I'm I, logical enough to see how they got there. And being at the beginning of this particular path, you you make a claim at some point, and then you know, like you, you'll go to hell if and you'll be saved if, and then somebody says, Well, what about this? And then they have to explain that little piece of it. And then someone says, Well, what about this? And then they have to explain that little piece of it. And pretty soon you have all the sins and what the consequences of them are and what the penances are that's required and Which clergyman can actually have which effect on which part of it? And you know, it has nothing to do with the revelation of Jesus. It's theology. Or it's even worse than that. It's dogma. It's the rules of the church. But it all sort of seems to make sense until you stop and think about it. And there's essentially also just two ways that you come at spirituality. One is you just come at it from the inside out. And it's just, it becomes who you are. It's not what you think. It's what you actually experience. And it just becomes the way you respond to life. And the other is, this is what I believe. And both have their place, but they're really very, very different. I I mentioned to you before that many years ago, 30-some years ago, I spent a weekend with a group of Episcopal clergymen. That was before it became a female profession, so there was one woman priest, and me, and all the rest were men, which was just incidental, but that was the conditions. And I was absolutely bewildered by them. I'd been invited by my friends. I had two, two Episcopal priest friends at that time, who were also creobans. I was just absolutely bewildered, because they had all studied their religion, and they had a, 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 a big understanding of the teachings of their religion but it was something they wore. Uh, put, they put on. And it, it wasn't something that they just... That was the definition of their reality. And I just... I didn't even know how to relate to it. It was so alien to my way of thinking. There were a couple people there who actually from, 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 were from the inside out, but mostly not. You know, you could hear it in their voices and in their demeanor when they behaved as clergymen. Just... Uh, it broke my heart, actually. It just seemed so, to be so close and not really to have actually touched into it was very hard for me. So, Master's talking about true religion. Now, a lot of people don't particularly want that kind of experience. That's what you also have to understand. Because that experience threatens what? It threatens the ego, is what it threatens. Because it reveals ourselves to be something other than what we imagine ourselves to be. So if people aren't interested... I mean, so that's why you can... Swamiji said he, he, he spoke at some college campus where the students were very, very bright and they had very interesting questions and they had a really dynamic discussion and it was you know, very interesting. But at the end of it, Swamiji realized that it was really not right for him to have engaged in that way. It was he had demeaned himself because they weren't really interested he said they just went, went home, as he put it, licked their intellectual wounds and came back with better arguments the next day. It wasn't really a quest for truth or a sincere seeking for inner experience. It was just an intellectual game. You think this, I think that. Here's my argument, here's yours. And many people, that's religion to them. And I suppose it's better than other things. Um, but Master's mission was entirely different. We are made in the image of God. Everything else is incidental to that. And you know, many very great saints are not even literate. They don't even know how to read. Because they... But then they become... We were talking about this this morning. Ramakrishna and Anandamoyama are two examples of that. who were They were completely illiterate. But highly educated pundits came to them to solve the questions. Because they would be presented with something from... Some statement from scripture. And they would see... The reality of it. And so then they would explain it from what they saw rather than from an intellectual perhaps this, perhaps that. Okay? So, number five, number six. Um, It was that same professor, I believe, who posed a classic question which came first, the tree or the seed? The tree came first, the master answered without hesitation as the idea of a deed precedes the deed itself. The tree was, in this way, a special creation of God when he set the process in motion. of the process of, When he set the process in motion, he gave the tree seeds that it might produce other trees like itself. Everything at first, Master added, is an idea, a special creation. Now, you know, I don't even know how to begin to think about when did that special creation take place and what about the Big Bang theory? Did everything come out at the same time? But but what Master is... There the are two parts of that that I really love and one I touched on, which is people can have that discussion forever, can't they? Which came first, the tree or the seed? And Master, without hesitating, said the tree had to come first because, they're, they're, because of the... Um, because of his perception of the nature of reality, that the material manifestation comes from the energy level of manifestation, which comes from the idea level, and that the power of the spirit, we are a dream of God and everything is manifested. So he has the idea of the tree, and then in order for the the tree to act out its destiny, he makes the tree in such a way that it can make its own seeds. I mean, I, I don't see it, so I can't really make that sound as convincing as master could make it. And so it can sound like a kind of a blind belief. But it's, it's a fascinating thing that he said, and he said that in terms also of uh, when, I think it might be in this book, when there's the question about hum, that humans evolving from the animal, and w- they've never found the missing link, as they call it, where the ape actually starts, shifts into a human being. And Master, again, emphatically stated, they will never find it because it doesn't exist. It wasn't like it accidentally happened that the monkey just got smarter and smarter and became a human. A human is, as he used that same phrase, a special creation. It just was, we were made as human beings in a certain way. From the beginning, we were manifested that way. Here, Master is saying, everything on this planet was created with its blueprint already there manifested? Yeah, why not? I, I can't do anything with that idea at all, except say, wow, <laughs> because I don't have any way of understanding it. But it makes more sense to me, everything that I hear about the idea that the monkeys just experimented and accidentally became human. Just, if you've ever spent any time with monkeys, it just doesn't seem likely, that's all I can say. <laughs> and it, it's, it's not very sweet. This is the day and night of Brahma, where everything is man- comes out in manifestation for the day of Brahma, which is this in extremely long period of time, and then everything is withdrawn, and then everything is remanifested again. I don't know what else to say. Does anyone have a thought about it? Do you all find it really hot in here tonight? I find it really hot. Perhaps we could open. Let's put on the fan. Maybe open the door. Yeah, I just am finding myself I found this to be uh, just absolutely uh, wonderful that, to find out finally right my oh I Anyway, and he found it out Jill says she found it absolutely wonderful to find that finally I know now that the tree came first. That's the tree yeah. came first. For those of us for those of us well, who Well the chicken did too. Yeah, that's, I was trying to remember what the classic one was. I kept thinking about the chicken crossing the road, but that wasn't really the question. <laughs> the question was about which came first, the egg or the chicken. Exactly. Well, but Because when you have that, when you think about it in terms of, you, you have the full idea in front of you, and you manifest the full idea. It's not just that we're randomly sent out there to see if we can accidentally find it. That's the, that's the part that doesn't... Also, just the thought that we're all just like gradually coming up from the mud is a very different idea than we're manifested down from the spirit. Because then our true nature is always animalistic, which people do argue. And that's why they tell you, just give in to your lower impulses, you'll never be happy until you express all of your animalistic nature, because that's who you really are, after all. That's just, you know, just a few millennia away from you. You're accidentally a human, but you're really much more like the beasts, Or to say that we've descended from the angels and that... God had an idea of who we're supposed to be, and that we're, we're that's our blueprint. Our blueprint is that divine reality, and so we're trying to fulfill that destiny. It just makes your whole orientation toward life completely different. What is real life? I, I my sister for my birthday gave me this book. She was on a holiday up in Maine and it's some historical site, some lighthouse, and there's just it's a little book. Written by a woman, who happened to be lost her sight as a child, but she lived in, as the, the daughter of the man who ran the lighthouse on this obscure point somewhere up in Maine. And it was just her little stories and her poems and things like that. And it it's so it's so sweet. It has this just re- really sweet. Just her consciousness, this woman it's written it was in, written in eighteen eighty but you 're just in touch with this um, purity, the sweetness of a person, and even though it 's not great literature, it is great literature because you can feel and and it had that um, very traditional idea of heaven and of jesus and um, but but you can feel a, a, a A soul reaching up for its own higher potential in a way that's so utterly sincere that even after 150 years, it still has magnetism when you hold it in your hand. And she she was nobody. She just lived there. She was blind. She lived with her mother. And then she just faded away. She had no significance on the stage of history. But you could see she had deep significance in her relationship to God. And to think of, to define such a person by their lower nature would be tragic. Yes.
1: Does all this take any position on uh, the idea of evolution as a mechanism as opposed to sort of the general perception of evolution and using it as an excuse to say that we're just animals?
0: Um, You know, I've never had real, real clarity on that, but this is how it seems to me. Um... Certainly, there's no missing link between animal and human because, because of Master saying, "Man is a special creation. We were created." The the way I understand it. Let me just try to think this out. the The real evolution is evolution of awareness. That was the question that was asked just before. An ever increasing refine. True evolution is the re, the gradual refinement of awareness. Um, where does he say it exactly? Yeah, the greater ones. Um, evolution, if we understand evolution to mean a progressive refinement of awareness, that's what evolution is. So a progressive refinement of awareness requires that there be different ph- physical vehicles capable of expressing different levels of refinement of awareness. So the way I've always made it work in my own mind is essentially from the theory that it was all, that God had an idea of the whole thing, that all those different levels of awareness exist in different physical vehicles. So as the individual jiva, soul, expands its awareness, it sheds the inappropriate body and is able to assume the appropriate body. So it goes from being a lizard to a puppy, from a puppy to being a horse, from being, you know, just up like that, whatever it might be, from a clam to being a dog. You can see that there's much more refinement of awareness that's possible for a dog that can run around and participate instead of a clam that just sits there at the bottom of the ocean and opens its shell and closes it. So once you've Finished everything you can experience as a clam, you'll need a more, a more versatile ner- and a more complex nervous system with more options in front of you. So I don't... It doesn't seem to me that every individual spark of creation is itself um, evolving the physical vehicle step by step. Rather, it seems to me that the creator made all the steps so that the individual souls could go through them. Because does the clam gradually become smart enough to become whatever it is that it would be afterwards? It seems to me that that's a a kind of refinement of awareness that would not be possible for the consciousness that's inside the clam. Does Does that make sense? I'm making that up but i'm re- i 'm going backwards from
1: let's see I mean, and we 're still not really talking about the mechanism of of evolution just like from a physical standpoint but see the... Always, I mean my feeling about it has always been, well you know if God can create all the creators that are out there already, there 's no reason they couldn 't just adapt and change to their environment as the world changes. You know, that's not a, a problem. But when we start having conversations like this, it's unclear whether it's taking a position about that part or well, so not. Think of,
0: it, think of it like this. There is no such thing as the evolution of a species. The only place evolution can take place is within the individual um, jiva, So, if the whole cat population gradually becomes more and more smarter and refined cats, there's no such thing as... No no soul is a cat. It's that a soul inhabits the body of a cat for as long as it serves it to do so. And you could say, if for the purpose of the individual evolution of all those different souls, we need more elegant, refined cats, um... They might happen, that could be part of the mechanism that you're trying to say, but that doesn't even define evolution, because evolution is the gradual expansion of awareness, not the gradual refinement of different physical vehicles.
1: I'm trying to talk about evolution as the other one.
0: That's what I'm saying, but is there such a thing?
1: So what I'm trying to ask about is just the position presented here, which is, is that just agnostic then? I'm
0: I'm trying to answer it. I'm saying I think the whole concept of evolution as applied to different physical creatures may be the problem in the discussion. Because the mere fact that the the, the cat was able to do these things yesterday and now it has an extra um, ear and now it can hear better, it's changed. But evolution only happens... In, on the level of consciousness, and that is merely a physical vehicle. It has it's, its consciousness. There is no consciousness called cat. There's only physical vehicle in which souls on their way to God-realization can manifest as cats. I think you nailed that one. Pardon me? I think And so there... That, I
1: still feel like we're talking about... We
0: well, because it aside, I'm, so. I'm, I'm refuting the entire premise you're trying to get me to discuss, which is that there is such a thing as physical evolution in and of itself... I, there's physical, there may be physical change, there may be adaptation, the planet changes, different requirements are needed, Satya Yuga has different animals than Kali Yuga might have. But you don't evolution. I, I, because, well, it, as soon as the crocodile dies, that, that new form of the crocodile is no closer to God. It's the soul within it that evolved, not, not the crocodile.
2: It's a different soul.
0: That, but, that's,
1: but that's not the common in society oh, usage no, of no, evolution, actually. which is what I'm trying to connect to.
0: I'm having a hard time connecting because I don't, I don't. You have the answer. It's time for a break. Let us now sing the school song.
2: You can go read Crisis in Modern Thoughts. Oh, Swami, in great detail, explains exactly what you're asking. I can't repeat it, but I just read it. Just go read Crisis in Modern Thought. He explains exactly what you're asking. And on one of Master's...
0: We'll both have to read it this week.
2: (laughs) one One of Master's talks on one of his CDs, he says, you know, this is a snippet out of a. He says, there is no past, present, or future. Everything is happening all at the same
0: time. Okay, so there you have it. Well, that settles that. No, actually, you know, I, we actually we should we both of us should look at that book. Well, let's look at it again and, and see what the relevant passages are. Yeah. Yes. But I think the difference between your discussion, why you didn't really match when you talked with each other, was you talked about the physical evolution and Asha, You talked about the spiritual evolution. Well, I'm trying to say that physical. I'm not sure there is such a thing as physical evolution. There's, you know, I'm just, I'm just. I know that people observe that one thing leads to another and that this one is more refined and this one used to be like this and now it's like this. But, but I'm, not, I'm not sure. And I'm, I'm admitting, I'm not, I'm not so good at this. Swami would be much better at this. He would be able to find, because he's more knowledgeable. But from, this is what my mind is doing with the question. And it's not satisfying Tandava's mind. And that's good, because there's two of us. And he often comes up with answers that I can't understand, that I haven't thought of. So, I'm not just because we're not matching doesn't mean I don't respect what you're saying. It's just all I can say. Okay, let's stop. <laughs> Take a break. Um, Tanveer and I are not yet having a meeting of the minds on the question of evolution. Not even enough to like hammer it out in class any longer. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go home and read. Uh, Crisis in Modern uh, Thought, which is now called Out of the Labyrinth, and as I said, it's a book that I haven't, I'm not as familiar with as other books, so I will actually have to sit and carefully read it and see if if I have anything to say, and Tondra's probably going to do the same, and there will be a, uh, there will be a a reuniting of forces next week. It's meaning, there's, yeah, meaning and evolution. He, he has several chapters of that book called Meaning and Evolution. And uh, Tandava has clarified his question, which is, is there such a thing as that physical transmutation from... But you know, th- there is and there would be in this sense, is that it depends on whether the yuga is rising or falling. Um, because right now what's happening on the planet is uh, a lot of species are becoming extinct. I mean, that's not the evolution of... One particular species, but it's part of that. I mean, if species are being affected by climate confusion and things like that. And so, the things that would flourish can't flourish anymore because the climate is shifting. So, will only the ones who can adapt to this new reality go somewhere? And, um, and all the, all of the, you could watch all those things happen. That's happening because yugas shift, and I mean, there's there's lots of. of as the phrase that Seigenthus uses is, you know, the whole idea of physical evolution is uh, phys- uh, an inference from physical observation. It's it. Yeah. Well, but 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 when you watch that, you know, it it the, the cat used to look like this, and now the cat looks like this, and we have these different um, examples of of how he shifted from here to here to here and here. You, you're inferring from that true physical observation certain links, certain causes and effects. Right. He, and so Swam, this is what Swami's dealing with. But whether or not that's true or what the, what truth can actually be inferred from that physical observation is, is what the discussion is here exactly. And that's where I'm going to... Swami spent 10 years researching and writing that book. So... And it was very important to him, and actually um, so, uh, in in many ways, uh, Hriman pointed this out first in a talk he gave all of Swami's teaching is based on out of the labyrinth because he he studied that he studied the entire trend of modern thought, modern values, science, religion, all of it, and he investigated and philosophy investigated it very deeply, and then tried to. Um, put it in in the context of master's teaching of self-realization and where did they meet? So it's exactly the question that Tandav is asking. How does this relate and does it relate? And evolution is one of those big questions because um, the, um, the implications of whether or not we are essentially divine and ha- have fallen into delusion or whether we are essentially animalistic and just every once in a while get our nose above the muck is a holy, it's just a wholly different way of thinking about ourselves. Even the whole idea that we had to be saved by Jesus Christ—we had to be ransomed. This this young girl that she's not so young; she was a, she lived to a ripe old age. But this woman that I, whose book I was reading, she used the she uses the word ransom in a lot of her poetry. That Jesus ransomed us from the devil. Essentially, he paid he paid the price to get us free. And the whole premise of that is that we're inherently sinful. And without his intercession, without his sacrifice, he paid the price. He ransomed us. But if we're inherently divine, um, the guru may help liberate us, but it's, it's within us. We don't have to be rescued. We don't have to be... Um, we're, not, we're not damned first, and then maybe we'll be saved. We're already saved, and then we accidentally make ourselves suffer it's a wholly different orientation, and uh, evolution and everything is all part of that. Did we come up from the animals, or are we inherently divine? It's very important questions. Not necessarily that, to me, in this moment, but to. Not in my different vehicles along the way. But right, I've I've said that. I mean the, the explanation that I have for it. But it has. It Tandav it is right. It hasn't seriously addressed the question that for many people is an important question. The mere fact that it's not important to me is my shortcoming. Swamiji, by, by contrast, felt it was vitally important for him to go into the um, the bowels of that way of thinking. And he describes, that's why he spent 10 years doing it. And he said it was very, very, very difficult um, to to not do exactly what I was doing, which was just dismiss the premise and go on from there. What Swami felt uh, it was essential for him to do was to really stand in it from the point of view of someone who, who utterly believed it and then how could you make the bridge to Master's teachings. And he had the, the power, the perseverance to do that and, and <laughs> very few of us had an under read that book. <laughs> and he's always, he used to, he doesn't anymore because he wrote so many after it. But in the early years... He, it would be—it would be kind of a got uh, to be kind of a how would I say it? I, the word I want to use is pathetic. It used to be a pathetic, futile effort on his part that he would do almost humorously. Just looking for someone who had read that book, which was called *Crises in Modern Thought* at that time. And if you actually had read it, you know, he just—he—he he treated you like the prodigal son. And if you actually remembered it and had been influenced it. You know, the throne was yours. It was just like that. <laughs> it was half a joke, but it wasn't a joke because he knew what that book meant. But then he would say in his lighthearted way, he didn't write it for us. Because by the time we were ready to be disciples and practice Korean, we weren't th- we weren't thinking along those lines anymore. You were, We were doing exactly what I was doing, which is, oh, well, here's the answer. Just forget it. It doesn't grip me like it grips many people. Oh, okay. I'm working. We're actually going to think
2: about this. Um, kind of an adjacent question, if we're looking at, you know, people are talking about evolution of the soul, evolution of the physical vehicles or whatever. Uh, if the soul is coming down through the causal and the astral and then the physical, if the physical Vehicle we have right now, for example, is based on uh, our spiritual development, based on our astral body. Then we probably can't just separate the physical bodies here from uh, from the soul. So how? Do, I mean, so just to bring into the picture uh-huh. of evolution and the question about evolution, the fact that whatever manifest down here uh, is the projection of who we are astrally who we are causally of the soul
0: I've lost the question Ram Murti can you try it, I mean, what is the question?
2: well it's not just like there's there are um, animals here let's say, that have their own development and then some totally unrelated unconnected soul comes and hops in, Uh that vehicle that we assume here is a projection of, of who are of our soul
0: right it's, it's 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 the it's exact it it's the exact physical manifestation of the vibration in our chakras
2: right. seem to have some determining element oh, on it, what exists down here
0: that the only things that exist down here in some yes i mean everything on this plane is here for the for the purpose of the soul that is inhabiting it is that is that the point
2: yeah so it seems like that would have something to do with whether it's evolution oh or whether, whether or not god not, is in charge
0: of evolution is that what you're saying that 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 god is in charge of evolution because he's making all those different things for the benefit of each individual soul
2: why is it got why would it be so here at all if it wasn't it there up? would
0: there would be nothing here if some soul didn't need it and if it, and if it's, if the, if a new physical form is created, it's because some soul, it creates it because it's an, it's a necessary vehicle for some specific.
2: So that's the element I would say. And
0: or the soul itself creates a sport of nature or an albino, something or another, because it needs it. Yeah. That's an interesting, Okay
1: say it sometimes is that you know at conception there's a flash of light and the soul in the astral world that is in tune with that
0: possibility um, uh-huh.
1: comes in and joins it you know and so we find ourselves families or parents or whatever that that are manifesting what we need and if it's not happening on this planet it'll be happening somewhere else and somewhere we'll find the, the conditions the exact one that we need that, right.
0: you know, and, and, and that does speak to the is God in charge of the physical changes because the physical changes are there for the benefit of the souls. And he so ha- it's has... kind of
2: back to the chicken and the egg.
0: Right. But see, this is where in, th- in this particular one, which I was trying to hold up as an answer to this, everything at first is an idea in the mind of God, I guess, and is a special creation, which means that every, every uh, iteration couldn't exist unless there was an idea first on the causal plane, and otherwise it couldn't happen. That is sort of the answer in a sense. I mean, in a sense, but you have so many other premises involved there. Ramani? I just thought of another thing that... I don't Speak know if, up, please. I just thought of another thing. Can you hear me now? Um... Uh, I don't know if it's related or not, but I think Master said or the idea was that if somebody is very depraved and acts very animalistic in their right. human lives, right. that they will go back into the animal existence. Right. And if they don't shape up after that, they can go all the way back to... to being a, a germ. Yeah. Well, that, that speaks to the fact that that it's about the soul, and the soul will find the vehicle that expresses the vibration of consciousness that it needs to express. We're, we're actually trying to have a discussion about, yes, it, that's just a simple truth. The question is, who made all those different vehicles? <laughs> were they made by, yeah, yeah, who made them all, and why? I have to go back to Swami's book. Okay. We we did really just hang out with evolution for a very long time. Forgive my incredible impatient outburst about the microphone. I've only been struggling with this microphone for how many years? So I would be very grateful. I will be very grateful when it all resolves. When we evolve. (sighs) Okay. I don't really know. Well, let's try number seven here. Okay, people spend too much time fussing over their persons and possessions. What a waste it is to devote so much energy to polishing, polishing, polishing this little body, home, and belongings, all of which so very soon must be abandoned forever, <laughs> quoth the raven. <laughs> Remember the story in the uh, uh, autobiography of Master coming back to Sri Yukteswar's ashram and finding it, offering to, you know, just that it was so shabby. He wanted to fix it and Sri Yukteswar just looked around and, you know, my little tiger skin and my, the Davenport where I sit is, oh, it looks fine to me. Just like, what difference does it make? And then he said, he kind of motioned like this, that's your world, that's not my world. You know, Master had to come to America where it was necessary to make things different. Swami Kriyananda had to persuade us at Ananda village that a certain level of refinement on the material plane was important. As he put it, first of all, he said, in America where money is not so hard to come by, he said, if you you, uh, are too poor, people think there's something wrong with what you're doing. That's when Swami bought a better car. Not a fancy car, but a better car. And he also said, if, if your environment is not sufficiently refined, people will think that your consciousness is not refined. Because in, in this age, people express themselves, in this age and especially in this country. As Swami said about his very old car at that point, he said, in India at that time, people would respect me for driving this old car. He said, in America, they just think there's something wrong with what I'm doing. Why can't he have a better car than that?" So he he really, uh, in many years ago, like 1978, when Swami, went, after he finished riding the path, and he went to India for a period of seclusion. He went into seclusion for several months. But before he went into seclusion, he went into seclusion in Kashmir. This was before it got so... Kashmir, before it got so uh, unsettled up there. Uh, and he was friends with a, a craftsman who had the name of Suffering Moses. And he was a good friend of his. And Suffering Moses um, had the, this really beautiful shop of all of this uh, hand, handmade Kashmiri work. And Moses, and he had an American wife named Mary, um, were aware of the fact that this was a dying craft because it was an art that, that people learned from, the, from childhood. And now compulsory education was taking the children out of that child labor pool. And as a result, and after education, they were not going to come back. And so it was a dying art. And so much of what he was seeing up there was never going to be seen again. So from India, Swamiji is, and I was his secretary at that point, and I'm, he's sending me these letters which I was reading recently about all the things he's going to buy, which is all the carved Kashmiri furniture you see when you go into Crystal Hermitage now. The the, the table in the dining room, all the side tables, the screens, the chairs in the living room, all this beautiful stuff. Um, We did not have a Crystal Hermitage at that point. We did not have anything that was remotely the right environment for that stuff. But he was going to buy it, and because for one thing it was just so cheap. I mean, the amount of money that Swami spent totally on all of that furniture was really literally a few thousand dollars. It was just—it's really priceless these days. But he was writing to me, and I'm trying to raise the money. And he's going to buy a banquet table for with twelve carved chairs and this big screen, and you know, the, all the living room set and the bedroom set and. He lived in, in just that dome. I mean, it wasn't even a downstairs, just the upstairs part. All of this. And it was just, we, we were living in trailers and teepees and he's buying carved Kashmiri furniture and embroidered uh, chair coverings. And it was just, we were just like, nobody knew what to do with it. I always, I always thought it was fun when he did things way out of the box. I didn't have a lot of problem with it. I just thought it was amazing that I'm raising $4,000 to pay for this stuff and arranging for it to be shipped. Where? Where shall we ship it, Swami? (laughs) Um, Eventually, soon after that, we started the ashram in San Francisco and rented this 45-room mansion at the corner of Broadway and Fillmore. One one house in. And it all went there. First, and then gradually it happened. But he was just trying to say to us, you know, this is really who we should be. And it, and what he chose was not luxury, but art. Because that that's how he wanted to show us. This is how we express the refinement of our consciousness with art, especially with handcrafts. You know, which which something which is really the manifestation of aesthetic refined consciousness. Because that, that's really who we need to be. Now, how did I get this off of this? Oh, right. So, on the other side, (laughs) I was actually contrasting it. I was contrasting it to Sri Yukteswar. So that has always been, for us, a little bit of a... Especially in the early years of Ananda, it was a big conundrum because we were very um, indifferent. But we were indifferent to the point of tamas, is the word I want to use, Our indifference was not true renunciation uh, so much as an unwillingness to engage. And that's that's different. You know, it's easier to renounce than it is to engage. So we have to have the capacity to engage and the energy to engage. And then we can choose. But if you're only disengaging because you don't want to put out the energy... Not, that's that's tamoguna, which looks the same as sattva-guna, but is not the same. The drunk on the street and the yogi in samadhi are both motionless. <laughs> but they're in entirely different places. So the disheveled, uh, impoverished individual may be living in circumstances that resemble what the yogi is living in, but there's a complete difference between them. But then once we have had the willingness to engage, then we really have to pay attention to how much. And right now, you know, yoga itself is being completely corrupted because this obsession with yoga, what people think of as a spiritual thing, which they actually credit to Patanjali because the word asana is in the yoga sutras. The word asana is in the yoga sutras. People think that all this physical yoga is actually Patanjali. But what we're doing is we're polishing, 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 polishing when we're just getting our body just so. And that's what he's really talking about. You won't find God when your body is perfect. Because sooner or later, when I was talking about food fanatics, going back to the paleo diet, which this is what gives me the right to be a little rude about it and not even be an informed rude about it, but just rude, was back in the days of... uh, the mucusless diet, which was, uh, his name escapes me at the moment, but he was the man who thought that mucus was the cause of everything, including war, and that if we just purged our physical bodies of mucus, um, then everything would be solved. And he, uh, including death, there would be no death because death was also caused by an accumulation of mucus. So it was a, primarily a fruitarian diet, and this man whose name a great, had a great name. Anyway, he, he, he was convinced, and so were a lot of other people that I knew who were fruitarians at that point. That at least has a little endorsement from Sri Yukteswar. Uh, he was going to live forever, except he stepped off a curb and was hit by a truck. <laughs> I wasn't happy to see him die, but uh, Arnold Ehrlich, Arnold Earhart, something like that. Yeah. Anyway, but he, he, he died uh, in the street by an automobile. So, as Master said to the man who said he'd cheated, he'd cheated the Grim Reaper three times with carrot juice. That's what this man said to Master. Master said, my friend, when the Grim Re- Reaper wants you, you can bathe in the stuff and he'll still take you. <laughs> you know, so, we have to keep all that in mind. Enough. Next week, we'll start with evolution and maybe dispense with it quickly and then go on. Okay? Any other questions you can save? We went from a number three through number seven. Okay.